I used to be a goalkeeper before I became a forward. And I quit goalkeeper because of the mental pressure that is there, you know? Wow. I really wanted to switch positions because I just couldn't handle it anymore. Because if you're a goalkeeper and you save the ball, you saved it because it was your job. If you don't save it, it's your fault. Yeah. So you're never on top. You know, it's never like, congratulations, you did a good save. No, it's nothing more than you were supposed to do. So. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network. Where are you right now, Bruno? I'm currently in Warsaw, Poland. Okay. Yeah. Is that where you live? Yeah, I'm currently living here. Yeah, originally from Brazil. Okay. Traveled most of my life. I traveled since I was a kid. My dad was working with soccer, still working with soccer. Yeah. So we lived in Abu Dhabi, in the Emirates. We lived in Doha, in Qatar, where the World Cup will be held this year. And then I moved back to Brazil for one year, then moved to the US for four years. And then I moved to Madrid. And now finally to, to Warsaw, Poland. Yeah. So you brought up the World Cup where it's being held this year. There's been a lot of controversy on where it's being held and the time of year that it's taking place. Like, What's your take on maybe both of those things? Of course, it is controversial, the fact that it is in Qatar. I lived there for one year, and then I moved to the Emirates where I lived for six years. So I'm very used to, to the country. I learned a little bit of Arabic when I was there. They had to change the time of the World Cup. It wouldn't be possible to during the summer months. It's, I mean... Right. I was there. It was hard to get out of the house. You know, it's so hot and so humid that it's yeah. unbelievable. So they they had to do it. But at the same point, like it's an opportunity to explore a new country, a new region that has never done anything in the in the sport, in the especially in soccer. They are fascinated with soccer. They love the sport. They invested a lot yeah. of money into it. So yeah, I see both sides to it. Yeah, that's a positive outlook, and I like that. That's what we need, right? There's so much negativity going towards these things. It's like, let's just enjoy it. In the US, one of the complicating things that I would say is so many sports are going to be taking place at that time from NFL football, college football, basketball, hockey, baseball will have ended. But soccer fans are soccer fans. They're very passionate in this country about it. So they'll be tuning in. I think with the US being in the World Cup this year, that's a big deal. At the same time, I'm looking at like, okay, world rankings, soccer, football. We're looking at Brazil. I mean, they're the odds-on favorite. They haven't won it since 2002. I'm looking at their lineup, right? I don't know who starts in goal, but it's looking like Allison, Vetterson backing him up. Like, that's just outrageous. What are you all feeling? Like, what's the feeling about the Brazilian team for this 2022 World Cup? I think just to conclude on the Qatar aspect, I think it's going to be interesting also to see it happening in basically a city-sized country. Yeah. In two hours, you cross the entire country of Qatar. So yeah, regarding Brazil, I think everyone's very excited about it. And as you said, we haven't won it since 2002. I, I was a kid at that time. And I remember crying a lot when Ronaldo scored those two goals. And yeah, I think we have a pretty good team. It's a pretty young team. And uh, when you look at the forwards, especially on the wings, on the sides, we have a lot of options. They're doing a very hard job for a coach to decide who's going to play, you know? I think mm. on the defensive side, on the goalkeeper and the defenders, I think it's pretty clear who's going to play. I think it's more of the older players that are going to get the chance. But up front, it's completely open, you know? Like, 
I don't think the coach has a full 11 setup in his mind yet. Like mm. he has so many yeah. variations and so many ideas that he could play. So, so extremely excited. And yeah, hopefully we can see Brazil at the top again. Yeah. The point about like making those decisions, especially in a country that's so passionate about the game, right? Like you all are living and dying with, you know, how they're going to play and one wrong decision. And even if it's not the wrong decision, but the fans think it's the wrong decision. It can go negative really quick. Like if they get knocked out early, you should have played this pretty, you know, in, in America, we talk yeah. about Monday morning quarterback, right? We love to analyze the plays and the decisions that were made the day before. And some cities in America have tons of pressure on them for making those decisions, unlike some other cities, just no different than Brazil and the country. And those decisions are just going to be analyzed over and over again. It's a ton of pressure. That's definitely it. And uh, we see the results of the last World Cup. I saw uh, an interview from this player, Renato Augusto. He used to play for my team for Flamengo. And uh, he scored, it was 2-0, if I'm not mistaken, for Belgium at the time. And he scored one goal and he had a clear chance to score the second goal and to draw the match. And I remember him saying like he couldn't sleep, you know, like people were on top of him, like talking about that moment because he did lose. Mm. He did miss a clear opportunity to score. So that was really bad. In Brazil, we say that soccer is not a sport. The biggest sport that we have is volleyball because soccer is beyond that. It's, quite, it's mm. almost a religion. So yeah. the pressure is very big. And we have over 200 million coaches for the national team during the World Cup. Everyone knows what's best for the team. Everyone knows who should be playing and what position, what tactics. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, being the coach is not an easy job for the Brazilian national team. But I think we have a good one at this year. Yeah. Yeah. What position did you play? I played as a forward. I was a number nine. I'm pretty tall. I'm six foot yeah. four. So I was pretty good with the head. So whenever the team yeah. was in a struggle, they would just cross the ball in and... Uh, I usually could finish those with the head. With the feet, I wasn't that good. I wasn't that fast. But with the head, I yeah, was... That height advantage is big. I was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're playing up top, right? A little bit more than the number nine. Yeah. And oftentimes, these games come down to the back end, right? A defender makes a mistake, an own goal, and the goalkeeper, right? And I bring this up because my son here in the States, he's a goalkeeper. Football in general is... There's a lot of mental... going in, in all sports, mindset's a big deal. As a goalkeeper, though, right? It's maybe to another level. And it's different, right? For as a forward, you're trying to score goals on the other goalkeeper. You're not necessarily interacting that often with the goalkeeper unless he's you know, getting the ball up to you distribution-wise. So what have you seen with mindset? And we can get into as it relates to you sports as well, but just starting with just that whole thought on the goalkeeper. I used to be a goalkeeper before I became a forward. And I quit goalkeeper because of the mental pressure that is there, you know? Wow. I really wanted to switch positions because I just couldn't handle it anymore. Because if you're a goalkeeper and you save the ball, you saved it because it was your job. If you don't save it, it's your fault. Yeah. So you're never on top. You know, it's never like, congratulations, you did a good save. No, it's nothing more than you were supposed to do. So even though I was pretty tall, I had the skills. I prefer to play up top because, as you said, one opportunity to score. I feel like the forwards and the midfielders, they have less pressure on what they can create. But yeah, I think they're subjected to that, you know, like one mistake. They have to train to be perfect. And we know that no one is perfect. Yeah. And it makes it really hard for the goalkeepers. Even though they are the ones that train the most, they work the most, like they yeah. get there one hour before everyone else, they leave one hour later. <laughs> yeah. And they're still the ones that are most criticized, you know, so not an easy job being a goalkeeper at all. Yeah. The culture in Brazil, you know, there's a culture in all sports and in all teams, right? 
and different teams handle it differently. And, you know, I've seen like goalkeepers make a mistake and I've seen teammates go up to the goalkeeper and it's not your fault. The ball never should have been in the 18, right? There's all of that. What is, I mean, you're looking at Brazil with, like I mentioned, Allison and Ederson, you have two of the best goalkeepers in the entire world on the same roster. But what is the culture around goalkeepers in Brazil? Like, is there a blame culture going around in Brazil as it relates to the sport overall and in goalkeepers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though we have the two best goalkeepers in the world, we still, especially in our national league, we still see a lot of criticism towards the goalkeepers. I remember we had a goalkeeper at Flamengo at one point late. I could be mistaken the dates, but I think like 2016, 2017, his name was Muralha. It was his nickname, actually. And Muralha in Portuguese means the big wall, you know? Yeah. And he was like scored on some goals that people were like, come on, like, they were adding on top of his nickname because probably he was good at some point. He was pretty good, but like he made a couple of mistakes and people were just making fun of him, especially with the nickname. They were making memes out of that. So out of his pressure, like health pressure, he decided to leave the club. And that's the biggest club in Brazil. And he'd rather go to a smaller club to like build his career and try to be seen and like later on try to grow out of that than to just keep the pressure to himself. So yeah, we see that every day in the country, especially in Brazil. With Alisson and Ederson, it's tough because they're so good. They make so little yeah. mistakes. But yeah, we see that, especially on our national leagues. Yeah. Well, when the games are magnified and it comes down to that one moment, all it needs is one mistake. And we've seen the yeah. best players and the best keepers in the world exactly. make those mistakes. In the biggest leagues. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a lot about transition in sports. And I was like reviewing your background. And like you said, you played for Flamengo. When did you stop playing soccer? I was playing for, actually, as I mentioned, I was a goalkeeper when I was living abroad. I was living in Doha. Yeah. I started being a goalkeeper. And then my dad was moving around a lot. At that time, I was 12, 13 years old. So I, I started playing uh, up top in Abu Dhabi. Played there for four or five years. And then I head back to Brazil. I graduated high school in the Emirates. And then I head back to Brazil. was playing for the Flamengo Youth Academy, which is potentially one of the biggest youth academies in terms of talents in the entire world. Like Vinicius Jr. came from this academy. Lucas Paqueta, that is also in the Brazilian national team, now came from this academy. So it's like probably one of the best academies when it comes to youth soccer in the world. So it's very competitive. So I was playing there for, for about seven months. And then I received an offer to go study and play college in the U.S. So I was going to Fresno Pacific, which was an NAIA school at the time. We did a transition to Division Two and CAA Division Two after my first year. And I was able to graduate there at the school, receiving a scholarship, a sports scholarship. And then right after, I never played at a competitive level anymore, just playing with friends. Yep. But I was getting into the, into the business of sports. That's when I, I decided that it was time for me to like, okay, potentially I'm not that good to make a pro to go play at the MLS. Or potentially I was, but I didn't want to make the effort because I saw how hard it would be. And things were evolving for me on the business side already. Since my sophomore year, I had my company. I started my company when I was a sophomore in college. So that's when I decided, I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to use soccer as a passion point, but not as a career anymore. And that's when I did the transition there. I love that because you really never left the sport. I mean, you are still a part of the sport. And there's a lot of things that we've already touched on that I can see that exist in the work that you've done and the work that you're doing. And you've seen... You have this passion for youth sports, and, and I do as well. I have three kids of my own, and I've seen the good and I've seen the really bad as it relates to youth sports. And obviously, you're dealing with top-level youth athletes and soccer players and what possibly is to come for them. And we've talked a little bit about mindset already, but 
it sounds like you're spending a lot of your time working with youth athletes in Brazil. What is the challenges that they face growing up as, let's say, like they're seen as these top players, but as we all know, like those things change very fast and there's a lot of pressure on these children to become something that they just, they're not there yet, but they're continuing to work at it. And sometimes they peak early, sometimes they peak later. I don't know, like what are those challenges, mental challenges that you've seen and and what are you working on as it relates to that? Absolutely. We are currently working with the very best youth players in the country. We're working with players that are signing contracts with uh, Real Madrid with uh, or are being scouted to very closely by to Real Madrid, Barcelona and the biggest clubs in the world. There are Brazilian national team youth players. You can tell that those guys are different. You know, when you meet with them, when you talk to them, you can relate. And when you look at their background, their their history, it's fascinating how they're getting there so young. You know, they're 15 year old kids with bright minds, especially they're very different when it comes to that. And one time I did ask one of these players, I was like, how does the pressure feel? You know, like you are uh, 15 years old, like you're carrying the hope for your entire family, you know, because they don't really have a financial stable situation where they can like go out and find jobs. And like, if this doesn't work out, I have that, you know, like they don't have this kind of things. They need to make that work, you know. And I remember talking to this guy and also an interview that I watched of this player. And they asked him, like, aren't you scared of going to a stadium with uh, 60,000 people screaming your name and like, or either for or against you? And the thing that he said really touched me and that really motivated me to continue working with youth players. He said that what really scared me when was I had nothing, I was living in the slums, I was living in the favelas. And there were rats attacking my sister and I had to protect mm. her from that. And mm. this for me, this is my passion. I love playing soccer. I love doing what I do. So even though it seems like that's for us, like, wow, that's a big pressure. You know, there's 60,000 people watching them. Where they come from, like the background mm. history, everything that they are dealing with on their daily lives, they're fighting for their lives. You know, they're fighting for survival. They know that, that if they don't do well, at the level that they are playing right now, they don't have what to eat the next day. So it goes beyond just the natural pressure of playing in the game and then going back home and having dinner with your family. For some of these kids, especially in these countries that are not, you were talking about third world countries like Brazil itself, like countries in Africa, these kids, they don't really have an option, you know, like they really have to focus on that. So yeah, so it's really tough. I can imagine like from, actually, I don't think I can imagine what it is to feel like the pressure that these kids have, but not the traditional pressure that we see, the match, Mm -hmm. the many people on the stadium, but the pressure to actually have to help your family to succeed, you know, to actually survive. That's really tough and that really touches me. And that's why I'm fascinated with working with youth sports. Yeah, that's like military. Like I've talked to people who have been in the army and they would say like, what was your goal? And it was to stay alive today. Like today, to stay alive, to make it to the next day, to come home to see my family again, right? There's those things. I've heard from a player here in the States and he was from Cleveland, Ohio. And there's talk about all the pressure that this individual was facing on the field. And it was like, he's like, the pressure I felt was walking to school knowing that the people behind me had a gun in their pocket, right? That's what made me nervous. So going on the field was my opportunity to play the game that I love, right? Whatever game that might be for those individuals. You know, this was American football that I was speaking of. But I guess the concern could be injury because 
if you get hurt, that's outside of your control. Are they not thinking about that? Because injuries are a part of the game. And we've seen great players have careers shortened because of injury, like maybe couldn't control. They could have stretched and they could have done everything possible, but they tore their knee. They Something else happened. They lost time. They weren't the same player when they came back. And I've heard many players who... You know, their transition was dealing with four years of the mental health and the stress of not being able to play the game anymore because they got hurt, right? I don't know if they've talked about that or you just don't think about that because it's like you just don't want to face that. But have you heard injury becoming a concern for some of these players when everything rests on them? Again, that's not the traditional pressure of don't miss this goal, right? Yeah. Do the right thing on the field. But I don't think it, that's something that goes through their minds on a daily basis. I think. Of course, they are afraid of, they are concerned, they don't want to get injured. But right. I, in my mind, from the conversations that I have with these young athletes, like they are concerned about getting better every day and making it because yeah. it's so unpredictable. We hear so many stories of so many players. Some of these players like Neymar, for example. Neymar, everyone knew about Neymar when he was 12 years old. Like Everyone mm. expected him to be Neymar or even better than Neymar, what he is now. And he actually got there. There are some players that no one ever heard of them until they were 16, 17, 18 years old. Like Kaká, for example. Kaká was on the bench of the under-17 team of Sao Paulo. And then he made his appearance on the professional team in Sao Paulo by luck, you know, because the other team was traveling. They invited him to train and they put him on a match and he scored the goal in his first match. But he wasn't on the youth national teams and he went on to become the best player in the world. There are so many stories. It's so unpredictable. It's so tough to tell because mm. it's not only related to the talent. It's not only related to the hard work that this player puts. It also relates to timing. You know, like where's this player at? At what moment does the team need a player like that? And of course, can this player not get injured during potentially that timing that the team needs him the most or that he could be shown the most? So there are so many variables here that are of concern that... Yeah, that could terminate the, yeah. the player's career early. And um, I think all of this just goes through their mind. But I don't think they specifically focus on the, when they enter a match. I can't get injured today. I can't get injured today. I think they feel like I need to perform better today because if I don't, someone else. There are so many kids that play soccer. There are so many people every day that are coming up. They're doing better that could potentially do better than me and steal my position. I need to perform better so more people see me and I can grow in my career. So I think their mindset goes more towards that aspect. Yeah. How are you, I don't know what the word is, signing these players, right? You're talking about some of the best players in the country that you're working with, right? And I, from what I understand, you have the top 11 players in your country and there's probably more too that you're working with. How are you able to form relationships with each one of them. Like that's no easy task, like just to like form that relationship, work with them and build what you're building. First and foremost, I think it comes to credibility and uh, to relationships that have been built with their agents in the past. So it's not someone that just stepped in into the sports arena and say, hey, I want to do this Web3 NFT metaverse kind of right. project. Like they already knew us, they already knew me. And they knew what I built in the country, in Latin America. We built the largest chain of soccer academies in the country. And we sent over 1,500 kids to colleges in the US. We sent kids to professional leagues. We had the number one, the first peak of the MLS draft coming out of one of our academies from Portugal. So we already had a lot of background and experience in the space. And I think what was very interesting is that when we started approaching these agents and these players as well, we showed them an opportunity to expose themselves to a new market, to a new opportunity. And of course, 
to new revenue streams. You know, like this is something new that you could be exposed to, to being first. And sometimes being first means having a greater piece of the pie and generating more revenue as you go and generating kind of different sizes of revenue, a revenue that really depends on yourself and what kind of engagement you generate throughout the community. And yeah, I think just to kick off this comment, I think the main idea here was that was adding credibility and new revenue sources to be able to attract these players. And of course, we were the first ones to, yeah. to approach them with a new idea. So they were extremely thrilled on finding new ways to connect with their fan base. I think that was potentially the third point that attracted them to be interested in a project like we started building. Yeah. And obviously, you mentioned this before we got on, but NIL has become a big deal here, name, image, and likeness in America with collegiate athletics. And it's been this thing to where like these amateurs, right, let's call them, or they weren't true professionals quite yet, even though they really were professionals, right? They're playing a sport, they're, someone's making money off of it. They weren't able to capitalize. They weren't able to make revenue off of the work that they're doing, off of their skill, off their name, image, and likeness. And that brings a business aspect, right, to what it is that they're doing as for young people. But I think if the young athletes, and no matter what sport they're doing, if they can focus on what they do and have people around them, to your point, that have credibility, that they trust, that they have a relationship with, then they can take advantage of it as opposed to being taken advantage of, if that makes sense. Because you have these young players that on their side, why shouldn't they be able to monetize and take advantage of the revenue opportunities that exist for them as opposed to, again, like I just said before, being taken advantage of. We've seen it for so long. And now you bring in new technologies, right? You bring in blockchain technology, you bring in NFT. We're talking about Web3. That changes things drastically. Like you probably saw it as a collegiate athlete. Like there probably wasn't much you can do when you were playing. Nowadays, there are different things you can do. I mean, obviously, the better player and the bigger the school that you're at here in the States, like that makes a difference. But was that part of what got you to think this way to say like, wait, there's opportunities that exist for these young athletes. And again, this is a marketplace. So on the other side of it is like, if I'm an individual and I see this player, I would love to participate in their upwards trajectory and be a part of their growth and support that growth and be there and become a even a, a bigger, not even fan, supporter of what it is that they're doing. Absolutely. I think the NIL brings an opportunity for the obvious because there was already a monetization structure there. They were already licensing the players' images. Like, yeah, yeah. It was just a matter of allowing that the players to participate. And to be honest, I never understood why. It never made sense. You know, like Why couldn't the players not monetize their own image? For me, that was clear that it was at one point it wasn't going to continue. That some changes would be needed to, to happen there. In, in our case, on the youth sports scenario, it was more like more like an opportunity that we saw in terms of there is something interesting here. These players are not being able, but they need a little bit more help to be able to monetize it versus the NIL, which I think it was already done, you know? So we have a bit more work on doing that. But what got us interested in that was the huge interest that we have already in youth sports. You know, we look at the numbers, especially in Brazil, where we are from, we take the youth league, the Copa São Paulo, which is the biggest youth tournament in Latin America, potentially one of the biggest ones around the world when it comes to soccer. It's one of the top three, four events on Google. If you search, like the number of searches, the number of views that these players were getting, it was already huge, you know. But there was a huge difference in like 
what kind of licensing is that? Is that like a group license? Is that a, an individual license? Where does the club own my image in terms of licensing? And what can I do with myself in terms of I'm an athlete, I'm a person, I want to go out and license my own brand, you know? So there was a lot of confusion. We realized that. And then we started to put together this package. So I think it was more of an opportunity that we saw trying to bring these players and helping them monetize. We have one player right now. His name is Hendrik. And like the kid is just a phenom. What happened to him throughout this year because of the Copa São Paulo in the beginning of the year was something like out of this, completely out of this world. Like he had about 14,000 followers when we started talking to him in early this year, February, March. And then he played this tournament. This tournament this year, because of last year's pandemic, it was an under 21 tournament. And he was 15 years old during the time that the competition started. And no one really expected him to play. Everyone knew that he was good. Like he was already known within the, the youth the conversations, you know, like people knew him by name. But no one really expected a kid 15 years old to play on an under 21 tournament, especially at this age. Six years make a huge difference. If you're 26 and you are competing against someone that's 20, probably the difference is not as big as in this case here. And not only he played, he was the best player. He was the top scorer. He scored the most beautiful goal of the tournament. He won every single award possible. And he just exploded in terms of searches, in terms of Instagram likes and followers. He has over 1.3 million followers on Instagram in less than six months. You know? so, so he wow. just exploded and we're there helping out, trying to figure out ways for him to be able to monetize this. Because as we mentioned, it could be that he becomes the next Neymar, but Maybe it's not, you know, like, so you have to enjoy that moment and monetize as much as you can because you never know what tomorrow is going to be like. Of course, we hope that it's going to be as bright as possible for him. He's already made his debut at the professional level at the age of 16. He's the youngest player for his club to ever make a debut. So yeah, we are there trying to generate new opportunities, but mainly trying to help the players generate new revenue streams, new opportunities to engage with its fan base. Is this through primarily the NFTs? This is through primarily NFTs, yeah. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, obviously, I've seen the exclusive football jersey. You're working with crypto.com. You have one goal. You have all these things. Like, break it down for me. So if we're out here and we're interested and we want to learn more, we want to participate, like, where are we going? What does it look like? What am I buying? Where do I buy it? All of that. I think the easiest way to explain what we're trying to build here is imagine that you could buy Cristiano Ronaldo's NFTs when he was 15 years old and participate on the upsides that his career brings to him. And we're not talking about the financial side of it. We're not talking about a percentage because you're not allowed to have a percentage of his future transfers because of FIFA, because of the limitations that you have on the legal side of it. We're talking about the experience side of it. We're talking about access to the player. We're talking about access to exclusive matches, access to exclusive memorabilia like jerseys, like cleats that he scores, a special goal, or even access to a dinner with him. I'm pretty sure today that a lot of people would be interested in engaging with Cristiano Ronaldo. He has over 400 million followers on Instagram. And I'm pretty sure there are some fans that would be highly interested in participating in this kind of experience. So what we're building here is we're starting with the very young players and allowing the fans to participate right at the beginning, you know, throughout their careers and to participate in this upside. So their first professional jersey is going to, we have a contract with them that the first professional jersey goes to the token holders 
that are part of his exclusive community. We have a series of uh, engagements that we do with the holders. And we always say that the experiences with the player, they tend to get better as they grow, you know, as, as the players develop, as they are playing in the Champions League in the future, as they're playing in the World Cup, in the biggest tournaments, the, the experience tend to get better. But the number of holders, the number of this exclusive community that we're building for them is limited. There's only going to be 101 spots per player, per community. So we're talking about a very limited number of people that will be able to enjoy these upsides. And something that we always tell the players as well, like, this is your guys' community. People are there to talk to you, to engage with you, to participate with you. They're not there to talk to Bruno. They're not there to talk to Andre, who's my co-founder, my partner. They're there to engage with you guys, you know? So you guys have to be active. You guys have to be there. So one thing that we did on the business model side is to give these players a big chunk of the revenue generated to keep them long-term. You know, we saw a lot of projects that were very short-term focused, a licensing deal that players there that does a couple posts on Twitter and gets 5% in, in perpetuity in terms of the revenue generated. We're doing a 50-50 split, you know, like it's us and you guys, you know, let's do it together. And you guys get the big chunk with us to be engaged in the long term. Because if not, it doesn't make sense. You know, so as you mentioned, we started with the collabs, with the partnerships, with the companies, with the likes of uh, Crypto.com, OneFootball as well. Rarible was one of the partners that we did. And we created what we call the pass. So the jersey pass, which is an NFT in a format of a soccer jersey that people can own. And they have priority into our upcoming drops. So our main drop of the players is coming out on uh, November 11th, and people will be able to participate on those. And if you have a jersey, you have priority access and you have more chances of getting the rare NFTs of each of the players as we launch them. So each player, 101 NFTs are going to be sold in three different categories. The player also becomes a holder within his own community. So he also owns an NFT besides getting 50% of the revenue generated. And yeah, if you guys are interested, join us on our Discord and our OpenSea as well. Yeah, so you get the jersey that gives you the right to then when it drops, right, to buy then an individual yeah. player at that point. Is that correct? It gives you priority into the drop. Okay. But you can't, at this point, you can't choose the player that you're interested in. We wanted to go a little bit back to the, to the Panini stickers that we have in Brazil. They are super famous. You know, you don't go to the bookstore and say, hey, I want this player or I want that country's badge. You know, like you get it and you have to collect it and you have to change with your friends. So we wanted to yep. replicate that same experience. So you buy one and you could be owning the one of two. Instead of doing one of one, we're actually doing two of two, which one goes to the player. And one of the two goes to the holders to purchase those. So you could purchase one NFT and get one of the, of the players, or you could get one of the lowest tiers. And you can't really choose the player at this stage. This is something that we're looking into the future. If you have like one of the rare jerseys that we provided, Maybe you could potentially choose the players that you want. You can't really choose the tier, but you could potentially choose the player. So these are some of the gamification that we're looking into into the future. So we have partners like, as you mentioned, Crypto.com, OneFootball, and we have some of the players. Imagine if some of these players are playing at the competitions that Crypto.com or OneFootball is involved. They own the rights or they're sponsoring some of these tournaments. We can create some engagement tools that if you own a jersey from Crypto.com, and these players playing at this competition, you rank higher on the raffles for a FIFA World Cup tickets, like we're doing right now. We're doing 10 tickets to the FIFA World Cup to the holders that own one of the Crypto.com NFTs. So a bunch of things that we can do as we go on to the project. Yeah. 
I like the idea of packs, you know, like you open a card packs and that puts it into the marketplace. Cause then I would assume if I was a holder, right, of one of these NFTs, I can then sell that NFT. So now if someone does want that individual player, exactly. you can go get it. That's after I've opened it. And then Absolutely. I lose value to it and increases in value, of course. Absolutely. Is this going to be available on OpenSea? Is it only on, you know, where would someone be able to purchase these NFTs, perhaps maybe at the very beginning and then afterwards once the pack's been opened? It will be on OpenSea and on Rarible. Okay. The Mint will be on our own website, but then the secondary market will be on OpenSea and Rarible simultaneously. Okay. What is, I would assume then, as far as blockchain technology is concerned, there's, and you don't have to have answers, like this gets more into the science of it per se, energy consumption, right? A lot of people are concerned with what this means. I'm asking this question to anyone that I'm talking to in the Web3 space because it's an important one because I think the first person that comes along that's a naysayer, they'll just say energy consumption, right? That's the problem. That's why I'm not going to get involved with it. What's been your take as it relates to energy consumption in NFT space and, and Web3 overall? I think we're evolving in that aspect. I think we're making progress to reducing the energy consumption. We, we look at Ethereum and we see uh, an improvement there. I'm not a specialist in the blockchain technology itself, but I always like to say that it's early days, you know, it's early days. Yeah. It's, a, it's a revolutionary technology. It's something that's here to stay. We have to improve it. Like we yeah. improved the internet, you know, like the internet right in the beginning, right. the, the amount of energy that was needed for one computer was immense. And we made progress to a point that everyone owns a cell phone right now. And uh, with a click of a button, you can get a black car in front of your house. We didn't anticipate the many things that we can do with technology that far ahead. And I think it's the same when it comes to blockchain technology. You know, I think we're just barely scratching the surface there. But there is definitely the need to evolve and to make it better, to make it more efficient. And I think we'll get there. I'm always uh, the positive one that really yeah. believes that it's here to stay, but we will need a lot of effort from all the developers to get there. Yeah, that's well said. Tero Labs, is that say it right? Yeah, Tero Labs. Tero Labs. Okay. And this project is the Rough Diamonds? Exactly. Okay. And where do we learn more about how do people connect with you, Bruno? How do they connect with all the good work that you're doing? LinkedIn is the easiest way to connect with me. I'm always there, always sharing a bit more about the project. To learn more about the project, I would go to the websites roughdiamonds.io. And the Discord is the perfect place to find out more. I'm potentially more on Discord than anywhere else. Right now, my wife, when she needs something from me, she goes on Discord and texts me, Hey, can you do this? It's easier <laughs> place to, to just reach yeah. out to me. And yeah, I think there are, our website has a bunch of information regarding the project. And I'll be happy to see more of you guys there. Yeah. And I saw one of the things that you had said is you're helping people through this process. It's still new, like you had mentioned in other aspects, to you have to help people. Like, what is an NFT, right? Where do I get started? How do I do these things? And that's a lot of the content we're even creating. So there's a ton of content out there where some of the things we might have talked about could be confusing to people. But it's that's why I want to have conversations to learn about it for myself. People around me can learn about it and anyone can learn about it. But I love the fact that you all are doing that too to help bring people up to speed on how to even engage with this, how to learn about it, how to pay attention yeah. to it because this is happening. Absolutely. When something is that disruptive, it always creates this kind of behavior in people. People don't like change, you know? Yeah. And they are reluctant to adapt into changing 
But unless it solves a real problem, unless it's something that they relate to, and then they actually get more and more into into what's being done there. So I think it's a process. We are doing our best to onboard as many people. We're talking to the players, their families, and trying to explain them the value of owning something digitally. You know, why does this have value? A lot of people ask us that, like, why does a digital asset that I can just take a screenshot of has value? And that's a fair question to ask, you know? And then when you start doing some of the analogies, like, why does art have value? That start making sense to people. So we try to use a lot of analogies. We try to bring them in. We try to primarily generate value on what we're doing so that they can see what's being built there and why should I own that Beyond the technology, you know, because no one wants to own the internet. No one wants to own blockchain. They want to, they want to have an experience with it. So I think that's where we are focusing a lot of our energy. And we see a lot of the biggest brands as well. Like it's very tough nowadays to try to watch a sports competition, a, a Formula One race or a match and not be bombarded with a crypto brand, you know, like they are everywhere. Yeah. I was trying to watch the Formula One last week. And they're on the pilots, they are right on the course because they really believe that that starts the conversation, you know, that ignites the conversation. You're at home with your family and then you see a crypto.com, you see a Binance, you see this kind of logos. And then your grandpa goes to you and say, hey, what is this crypto.com that is showing everywhere, you know? So that starts conversations and sports is probably the best place for that. And we're pretty excited to do that with the sports fans, you know, because there are so many people that consider themselves fan of sports and to generate value through that and onboarding people into Web3. I think it's something super unique that we have the opportunity to do here. I would agree. And we say the words, uh, sports bring people together. And that's what you're doing. And you're doing it in many different ways. And that can mean a lot of different things. And to your point on the branding that is being done right now in all of sports with companies on the outside, with the actual teams and the clubs and the organizations. And then you had the utility to what it is that you're building, to that NFT, that utility means something and there's value behind it. And at the same time, it's like, hey, if someone wants to buy what you own, there's value there. We could argue about why someone wants to buy that. I don't know. If you like this microphone and call me up, say, hey, I'll pay you for it. Well, there's value in that. If you're the only one, hey, you're the only one. If there's a market for it and more people want to buy it, the price goes up. Like Sometimes it's just simple economics that we're talking about. Like We don't have to overcomplicate this thing. If no one wants to buy it, then there's no market for it. Absolutely. It's the exact same thing. No, we always discuss the fact that it's not only with NFTs. It's we're talking about supply and demand, basic economics, as you mentioned. You know, like if no one wants to buy, there is no value. People don't see the need to own that. But if they do, the prices could increase. And we always tell the players, like, the price of your NFT will increase, in our opinion, it could increase based on two factors, like your growth in your career, which will bring in more audience, it's gonna bring more people to see you, which could potentially lead to more people wanting to be close to you and have access to you. And the more fun people have while owning this NFT, you know, because if they have a blast, if they have access to you, if it's not just a collectible, which is already a huge market, especially in the US, it's a $13.6 billion market just for the collectibles itself. Like, and, and people ask, well, what's the utility? Like, there's no utility beyond the fact that you own that and it's exclusive and there's just a limited edition of those. We are adding the utility layer on top of that. 
So yeah, it could potentially generate even more value than the traditional than the traditional car. I personally believe that the digital sports collectibles will be 10 times bigger than the physical sports collectible market because it's just so much easier to collect a, a digital good. You know, you don't have to go to the store. The store doesn't need to have inventory to have that specifically for you. You can just purchase it at any time, 24-7. You know, you can go there, yeah. it's available for you and you can track it. And plus the authenticity layer, plus like yeah. all the other layers that you make it so much easier. So I really believe that this is a is a hundred plus billion dollar market that is being built right now. You know, yeah. the biggest companies of this segment are being built at this exact moment in time. So that's something that we're super excited about as well. I'm sure it's the connection, right? You feel more connected to it. It's Absolutely. no different than like. I could read about your company, I could read about you, but then I can have a conversation with you. There's this bigger, deeper connection that's built from it. And yeah, not everyone can do that, but that's why this thing goes public and other people can listen in and hear and see you perhaps on other podcasts or videos. So it's that connection that takes place through all of this. And it's community, right? That's the word that keeps coming up over and over again. It's that community and it exists at many different levels. But Bruno, this is... I love it. I'm excited. I thank you for spending the time with us. We'll continue to learn about it. I would encourage anyone to continue to learn about what you're building. But man, I appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for the space, Eric. Nice. Super nice to be here. Uh, super fan of the pod. So keep on doing it. And I, I couldn't believe more and I couldn't agree more that my entire background and experience really relates to the name of the podcast. You know, like sports bring people together. And that's exactly what we're doing, exactly what we're trying to build here. So super happy to be here. And thanks for the invite again. Uh, this is awesome. I've joined the Discord this morning. What's so cool is I get to share it and other people get to hear it. And like I can push people in that direction to say, this is what we're talking about, right? As we continue to learn about it, this is like, let's pay attention to it. And what better time to do it than when the sport is top of mind and it's growing in this country. And I'm a big believer that, you know, I don't know where they go. I think American soccer has their own set of issues for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of sports to choose from here, right? Exactly. The competition is huge. Yeah, it's huge. But I'll tell you what, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte FC had their first year this year. And the Carolina Panthers playing the same stadium. And without a doubt, the better game to go to is a Charlotte FC soccer game. Even if you don't know one player on the field, right? Just the atmosphere, the experience, it's just better. And not to mention, it's two hours or maybe two and a half hours. Like, football game, American football games and some of these others, they take forever and it just yeah. drains it and it's exhausting. And yeah. there's just something I think just in the time alone and how like, it's just so easy. You could be in any country, we can have this conversation. So like, it's a global world, obviously that we live in. And I think there's just more connections to these sports. Like I wake up on Saturday and Sunday morning and watch Premier League, right? Like, so I love watching it. It wasn't as easy to do, say 10 years ago. Now it's just, it's just there. And not to mention, like, I can watch any league mostly at any time on demand. So if you're interested in sports, like soccer is available and we call it soccer, obviously. So that's confusing. But <laughs> anyway, I just want to say all that. So I think what you're building, what you're part of is huge. So yeah, especially the timing as well. I mean, the next World Cup is in the US, you know, so yeah, if you are the CEO of MLS right now, you have a very tough job, you know, because you have yeah. to compete with cultural sports. It's not easy to change people's mindset. Oh, now I'm not going to watch baseball yeah. on Sunday and barbecue with my family. I'm going to watch soccer. You know, like it's tough. It takes generations to actually switch that around. But yeah, I think it's on track. I think there are some good things being done. Some things that, of course, need adjustment. The fact that there is no relegation is something not very well seen in the sport of soccer. But we understand the business side of it as well. 
and the youth, especially the youth sports, are immense. Like I remember looking into the bit, like researching more and learning more about the the number of kids that are playing soccer, the increasing number of kids playing the sport. I think it's just a matter of time until soccer in the US becomes soccer in the US, you know? Yeah. But I think we're making good progress towards that. And I hope to see US on top as well. Yeah. And there's room. There's room for multiple sports here. And there's so many. I mean, I could get into so much of it. The relegation piece is a fascinating one. And when you look at the other sports like NFL, it's so hard for a football team because there's 53 players on a roster. So it's like really tough to make a team of basketball and hockey and whatever. But it's because all of a sudden you have teams tanking to get a top pick in the draft as opposed to playing for their livelihood to stay up in that division. And it's just some of the best games, some of the best matches are those relegation games as opposed to who wants to watch the two worst teams in the league. And are they even trying to win at that point? So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It kind of creates a different tournament within the tournament itself, you know? Yeah. Because sometimes you have, uh, for example, right now in Brazilian League, you have Palmeiras. They're like 10 points in front of the runner-up in the tournament. Yeah. And like, if it was in the US, it would look like... It's over. It's over, you know? Like three matches left. Like there's no more fun. But now you have like seven teams running away from relegation and they are playing against the teams that are fighting for the first spots and the spots to make it to the national, the continental cups. So it does increase dramatically the quality of the levels, you know, and that yeah. the emotion itself. So it's a big difference. And yeah, unfortunately, we don't see that in the US. But yeah, we'll see how that goes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Bruno, thank you again for your time. Let's please stay in touch. I'll stay involved with what you're doing. And thank you again. Thank you very much. Nice meeting you. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a -a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network.